Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV, and Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome to 2023. I can't believe it. It's our third year in existence. Pretty iconic. Before we get into everything today, I know some of you might be confused and be thinking to yourself, haven't they already done this episode? I'm going to give you more on that in a brief moment. First, some housekeeping. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. We are launching a new contest where we are going to pick our favorite review every single month, our favorite new review, and that person is going to get their review read on air, and we're going to send you a Pop Pantheon niche legend dad hat. So review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, leave us five stars. You are not getting entered in the competition unless you give us five stars, and perhaps you will delight us enough to get a free niche legend dad hat. Of course, follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on both Twitter and Instagram. Check out the Spotify playlist for this and every episode in the show notes of this episode. And of course, join our Patreon Pop Pantheon All Access. We have so much great content up there right now. If you join at the icon tier, you're getting at least one bonus episode of the show per month. We've done episodes on past albums like Britney's Blackout and Taylor's Reputation. We've done reviews of SZA's new album. We've done new music omnibus episodes where we talk about all the new hits by all of your favorite stars. So we have so much fun content planned for there. Plus you get access to discord so many other great perks so join pop pantheon all access at patreon.com slash pop pantheon or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode and as is our new tradition i want to shout out our latest five patrons who are sarah d zachary c xavier l armin's R and melissa t guys thank you so so much for being a patron and for supporting our little show and of course, check out merch, poppantheonpod.com, niche legend dad hat, mere superstar t-shirt, all for sale there. So get that poppin. Next up, my queer pop party in LA has our next installment on January 13th. That is a Friday. And if you are a patron, you are guest listed for that. So come one, come all to Gorgeous Gorgeous. You can buy a ticket using the ticket link in my bios on social media and in the show notes of this episode. And if you're a patron, holler at us in the messages on Patreon and I will guest list you for Gorgeous Gorgeous Friday, January 13th at Resident in downtown Los Angeles. Hope to see you guys there. And lastly, we are once again on the lookout for a new audio editor, part-time audio editor. Do you like this podcast? Do you like pop stars? Preferably somebody with some amount of experience, obviously preferred. And obviously if you're a fan of the podcast, we like that too. But if you or someone you know would be interested in working with us as our part-time editor, get at us at poppantheonpod at gmail.com. Okay. So this week's episode is the first of three new episodes we're doing on Madonna. Now, as many of you, especially long-term listeners of the show will know, in our first handful of episodes, maybe in our first five, we did an episode, an iconic episode that many, many people still hold up as one of their favorites of the show with Rich Jaswiak about Madonna's later career. We talked about everything from hard candy through her current era, kind of like what's gone wrong in that particular era. And I love that episode, but we've also gotten a lot of comments slash blowback from people who feel that we should have highlighted her a myriad achievements and the way she laid the blueprint for pop stardom and talk about her massive 
25-year peak era. And I agree. I mean, at the time when we recorded that episode, I didn't realize that we were going to be able to do these multi-episode arcs on bigger pop stars where we were able to cover their career in depth. So that was my best attempt at that phase to do an episode on Madonna, who has such a large footprint and huge discography to cover. But now we do know how to do that. So that is what we are doing. We are rectifying this past indiscretion and really taking the time to lay out in detail a career that really should be laid out in detail for anybody that cares about pop. So I am endeavoring to do that here. This first episode will cover her early life, her debut album, her second record, Like a Virgin, and True Blue, her 1986 juggernaut. The second episode, which will be out next week, will cover Like a Prayer all the way through Bedtime Stories. And the third episode will cover Ray of Light, Music, American Life, and Confessions on a Dance Floor. We will repost our episode with Rich following that to make a complete foursome, I guess, which I mean, if any artist begs to have four episodes, it's Madonna. So this is kind of Madonna month on the show. And I'm really looking forward to you guys hearing these episodes. We've worked really hard on them. I'm so enthralled by Madonna at this point, having been so ensconced in her work for the last period of time. And I hope that exuberance and my passion and love for her comes through in this. We get into so many different dynamic topics about how she laid the blueprints for pop stardom, all of the stickier commentary on her cultural appropriation, all of her different reinventions, her innovations, her weaponization of visuals and controversy. I mean, it was one of the most dynamic runs of episodes I think we've ever done. So I'm really excited for you to hear them. Feels like a great way to get 2023 off on the right foot. So here it is, Pop Pantheon, the queen of pop, Madonna. Madonna. In the 80 or so installments of this program so far, we've mentioned her name on almost every single one. No matter what artist or topic we're covering on this show, she is relevant, nay, necessary to include as a reference, if not hold up as the paragon of almost every single pop trope or musical idea or visual aesthetic we discuss here. There is no pop pantheon as we know it without her. Madonna wasn't the first pop star per se, but in a way, at least in the way we conceive of the concept today, she may as well have been thanks to her ability to synthesize everything and everyone who had come before her into the most maximalist, 360-degree version of the craft we'd seen to the point of her explosion in the early 1980s and that still stands today as the platonic ideal of the job. So much of what we take for granted, from the genre and visual fluidity to the elevation of the music video to the weaponization of controversy or the idea of an album era or an imperial phase, of the modern grand arena spectacular, or of the very concept of reinvention, she did it first, she did it best, and she did it longest. For nearly a quarter of a century, Madonna was churning out relevant, fascinating, and popular pop music, a feat matched only by a small handful of the greatest artists to ever do it. And even as her success has waned, her footprint has never been bigger. Titles get tossed around a lot in popular culture, but to call Madonna an icon, a legend, or the queen of pop feels, if anything, not big enough to contain her. Madonna is pop stardom, plain and simple. Mine, 
Madonna Louise Ciccone was born in 1958 in Bay City, Michigan to father Tony, who worked at a Chrysler plant, and her mother, Madonna. The middle of six children, Madonna's early life was defined primarily by three things. Elder Madonna's death from breast cancer when she was just five years old, her fraying relationship with her father once he remarried the family housekeeper a few years later, and the Ciccones, as was the case with many mid-century Italian-Americans, devotion to Catholicism. Always a rambunctious and rebellious child who was seen as a bit of a weirdo and outcast at school, Madonna eventually discovered a passion for ballet and secured a scholarship to the University of Michigan, only to drop out soon after and, as the mythology goes, moved to New York to pursue dance with just $35 in her pocket. Ensconced in her shitty East Village apartment, Madonna worked odd jobs including at Dunkin' Donuts to make ends meet while she studied dance with luminaries like Martha Graham and Alvin Ailey, but soon after, thanks in part to her relationship with musician Dan Gilroy, got sucked into music, eventually forming a band, The Breakfast Club, with him in 1979, and a second band, the Emmys, along with past boyfriend and future collaborator Stephen Bray. Quickly unsatisfied by being part of groups and brimming with her signature moxie, Madonna struck out as a solo singer in the early 1980s, recording a series of demos, and, thanks in part to her entrenchment in the vibrant downtown nightlife scene of that era, became involved romantically and professionally with the legendary DJ Mark Kamins, who collaborated with her on a demo called Everybody, a simple and catchy electronic dance song, which the two debuted at famed club Danceteria in 1982. Everybody eventually landed Madonna a singles deal with Sire Records, with that and follow-up single, The New Wave Rump Burning Up, becoming big enough dance hits to convince Sire to let her record a full-length album. Largely a collaboration with the producer Reggie Lucas, Madonna released her self-titled debut in 1983, a collection of post-disco disco songs, innovative for its use of almost entirely synthesized instruments and featuring a panoply of classics from the era like Holiday, Borderline, and her first top five single, the effervescent Lucky Star, which hit number four on the Hot 100 later that year. Madonna made Madonna an interesting, if perhaps slightly non-distinct, new pop starlet. However, it was her sophomore album, 1984's Like Virgin, complete not just with a slew of massive hits, but with a handful of era-defining multimedia moments that both established her as a premier deployer of the power of newly christened television channel MTV, as well as a full-fledged superstar. In an early display of her boundless ambition, Madonna had originally tried to convince Sire to let her self-produce Like a Virgin. However, when they refused, she insisted that she work with the legendary Niall Rogers, member of definitional disco act Chic and super producer of massive disco and post-disco hits by everyone from Diana Ross to Sister Sledge to David Bowie. Together, the two worked on a collection of songs, some of which Madonna wrote herself and others which were taken as submissions, many of which functioned not just as great dance pop records, but also as multi-layered statement pieces, available to be consumed either as straight-ahead pop fluff or as irony-laden social commentaries on sex, gender, wealth, and perhaps even more pertinently, lightning rods of controversy. The album contains canonical singles, not just for Madonna, but for pop in this period, including Dress You Up, Angel, and of course the number two smash Material Girl. The tongue-in-cheek pay-on to 80s gluttony, which would give Madonna an enduring nickname and produce a medium-defining music video that gloriously recreated Marilyn Monroe's legendary performance of Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. But it was the lead single, the instantly incendiary Like a Virgin, that enshrined Madonna at the top of Pop's Mount Olympus. A simple ode to a love so powerful it makes her feel like the very first time. The 
The song was given its signature oomph from the layers of irony in Madonna's vocal performance and its generation-defining music video where Madonna writhes about on a gondola in Venice. More pertinently, though, her performance of the song, which opened the inaugural MTV VMAs in 1984, descending from a multi-tiered cake and rolling around the stage, underwear on full display for the TV cameras in a tattered wedding dress, set off the pop firestorm of the century and forever seared Madonna into history. Like a Virgin was a titanic success, producing four top five singles, including two number ones, and selling 21 million copies worldwide. It, along with her well-received performance in the 1985 film Desperately Seeking Susan, established her as a pop icon for a new generation in which her fashion, her attitude and persona, her utilization of her image, and her ability to stir up cultural conversations were just as important as the music. It also set Madonna on one of the longest hit-making runs pop has ever seen. After producing two Lucy smashes in the mid-1980s with the ballad Crazy For You and the dance floor slammer Into The Groove, Madonna pulled off her first true reinvention with her next album, 1986's seminal true blue. Here, Madonna ditched the tattered street urchin look, which had defined like a virgin, for a sleek bleached blonde haircut, a pinup look which harkened back to 1950s golden era Hollywood, and her newly impossibly fit body, which would become a signature for decades to come. The music, too, got leveled up significantly, not just in terms of the muscularity of the productions from Bray and Patrick Leonard and the scope of genre experiments, but also in terms of the heft in subject matter, a pursuit which would define each successive Madonna album through the early 2000s. Although largely an ode to her love with husband Sean Penn, whom she'd met and married in the interim between Virgin and Blue, on songs like the number three peaking Motown nodding title track and the robust exuberant chart topper Open Your Heart, the record took on weightier themes such as coping with childhood trauma on the lead single, the number one power ballad Live to Tell. Its signature song, though, remains second single Papa Don't Preach, a Baroque dance pop number which unfurls a tense and claustrophobic tale of teen pregnancy, complicated paternal dynamics, and ideas about women's bodily autonomy, all in the context of an unforgettable pop hook. Papa Don't Preach hit number one in summer 1986, and along with True Blue's four additional top five hits, helped the record become one of the biggest sellers of the 1980s, moving 25 million copies worldwide, and cementing Madonna not just as a hit maker, but one of the premier pop artistes of her day, capping off one of the genre's most storied opening salvos in its history. Given this auspicious arrival, perhaps no one should have been surprised that she was still only just getting started. Here with me to discuss Madonna's early years as an upstart pop provocateur turned auteur is host of the wonderful podcast Inside the Groove, Edward Russell. All right, so I am here with Edward Russell, host of the incredible podcast Inside the Groove. Edward, welcome to Pop Pantheon. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I am delighted to have you. This is a huge topic for us to be biting off. (laughs) Our show is about pop stardom. Our entire show centers around attempting to taxonomize the world of pop stars. We take them one by one. We try to break down their entire careers and discographies. And this is sort of patient zero for (laughs) almost everything that we ever talk about on the show. 
and it feels like a big project, which is why we split it up into numerous episodes. But I'm so thrilled to have you here because you host a podcast that is devoted to Madonna, that is devoted more specifically, I think, and one of the reasons I'm excited to talk to you, to her music, which I think gets sometimes lost in the shuffle when we look back at the iconography or the sort of larger than life looming figure that is Madonna. Everybody can get wrapped up in thinking about her as a brilliant tactician of celebrity, as a incredible deployer of controversy, as the most famous person that's ever lived, et cetera, et cetera. But one thing that struck me as I went back through her music this time to prepare for the show was one of the most important aspects of Madonna's gravity-defying long run of success is the fact that the music was always incredible, compelling, fascinating, super hooky, super you wanted to listen to it. That was the foundation of the whole thing. And I think also sometimes when her musicianship gets sidelined in the conversation in lieu of some of these other aspects of her, you lose the fact that through so many collaborators, through so many producers, the one constant is her. So there's an element to her as one of the greatest pop musicians of all time that I think really gets lost in the shuffle here. And one thing that I'm really excited to do in this series and I'm excited to kick off doing with you is for people that perhaps didn't live through the innovations, the music, all of the hits, everything that she did, the way that she essentially created pop stardom, as we think of it today, for all intents and purposes, to help illustrate that, how she did that. And a lot of that, I think, comes back to her instincts and her musical acumen and ability to understand how to turn that all into something bigger than any other pop star had ever done before. Madonna is a brilliant visual artist. We all know how she looks, how she moves, how she dances, but it's all down to the music. And if the music wasn't good, we wouldn't have paid attention to the rest of it. So it's been great on the podcast to celebrate her as a musician, because I think a lot of people don't necessarily think of her as a musician, either because they're swept up in the controversy around her, or I think there's a lot of people that don't believe or understand just how involved she is in the music. I mean, I think back to when I first heard her, I assumed that she was a female pop star singing a man's song or man's songs. <laughs> and, and I feel ridiculous for thinking that. But back in 1984, that's what happened. You may have got the, the Joni Mitchells or the artists that had been around for some time who were singer-songwriters. But this was a sexy, vivacious, dancing, all-entertaining female. And I made the assumption that I'm sure many other people did that she was a puppet, I guess, for somebody else. Mm. How wrong I was and how wrong we were all going to find out that we would be. Absolutely. So I want to get into this by helping situate Madonna's arrival in the broader scheme of pop stardom. Because I tend to think of, as I said earlier, the early 80s and her in particular, but her sort of in tandem with Michael and Prince and perhaps like George Michael and a few other pop stars of that particular moment as essentially seeding the idea of how pop stardom works in a modern context. But I'm curious if there's certain pop figures, maybe particularly women, but it doesn't have to be prior to the early 1980s, prior to Madonna's explosion, that you feel are sort of instructive in whatever way that is, whether it's in a visual sense, in a musical sense, in a celebrity sense, that are just sort of like pop stars that clearly presented something that she was building off of. Are there ones we should point to, I guess? Well, I think you've made one huge mistake that everyone makes with Madonna is you're looking for female references. Right. And Madonna 
Madonna doesn't think that way. So the people that influenced her were David Bowie, without a doubt. Right. And bands like Roxy Music, male frontmen. We can certainly see some females, people like Deborah Harry. Yes. And I mentioned Joni Mitchell just now. They definitely had some sort of influence on her. Donna Summer as well. But she was a pop star first and foremost, more than she was a female pop star. And it's really interesting, just now you mentioned Michael Jackson and Prince. And of course, anyone who knows anything about these pop stars knows that Madonna, Michael Jackson and Prince and Kate Bush were all born within weeks of each other, which is kind of fantastic. In the summer of 1958, these four pop stars were born and they all had success around the same time. They globally were coming from the same epoch. And I think that's really important. And this is something I'm sure we'll touch on again and again. Being born in 1958 at the explosion of rock and roll. Cause they'll be rocking on bandstanding in Philadelphia, PA. Deep in the heart of Texas, around the Frisco Bay. And then growing up during the 1960s, and particularly I'm sure we'll talk about Madonna being influenced by Motown and that music from the late 60s. And then what happened in the early 70s, I mentioned Roxy Music and David Bowie. And then disco. She was perfectly timed, as were those other artists, to absorb the first generation of pop music as we know it today. Mm. And she, along with artists such as George Michael, Duran Duran, Eurythmics, those other great artists coming over from the UK, were the first generation to make music, having been brought up on music. Add to that, you've got new technology with synthesizers and drum machines and new ways of recording. And Madonna was perfectly placed perfectly timed to be what she became. It's no coincidence that she ended up as she was because she was just born literally at the right time. In thinking about rock music, whatever, the new romantic glam rock movement of Roxy Music and I guess Bowie to some degree, and then of disco as being the three that you put pins in there, and then obviously the artists that are related to those different moves. Oh, Motown as well. So Diana, the Beatles, Donna Summer, Bowie, etc. What is it about the growing up on those things that you think informs her and her generation of pop stars take on what that term means? Well, if you listen to some of the demos that exist from her pre-fame period. Demos of songs that went on to be famous such as Burning Up and songs that never actually got released by Madonna as an artist. They're quite varying. They're generally quite rocky sounding. But they're in different styles and you mentioned some of those there. But what is at the heart of them is melody and this is something that Madonna brings to it all and I think it goes back to Motown and not just Motown but that kind of spinners style music that was around in the early 70s as well it's all about melody and harmonies and it's in all of Madonna's songs before she was famous after she was famous and right up to date a really strong sense of melody and as I'm sure we'll discuss she primarily in the songs that she wrote she wrote the melody and the lyrics whereas her collaborators would write chord structures and arrangements etc and she just has this sense and I think the same goes for my 
Michael Jackson and to an extent Prince, who was perhaps more of a musician than those two, mm -hmm. that they absorbed all the right melodies at the right time. And she was hearing, as she was growing up, she was hearing the Beatles, she was hearing the Carpenters, she was hearing Diana. And as she was starting to go clubbing, she was suddenly influenced by the rise of disco. Bands such as The Three Degrees or Chic, that kind of stuff. And this is when she was going clubbing. And at, right at the time that she was making music, synthesizers became a thing. And so it was all these things colliding together. But melody, fundamentally, is what pulls all these songs together and is kind of the unifying thread in all of her music, really. I wonder how you feel about the idea of also that generation of pop stars representing a sort of polyglot, postmodern take on music in the sense that pop music at that point becomes less about being genre-specific and being more about cherry-picking from all different types of music and elements from different past genres and underground scenes and all that kind of stuff and sort of picking out the most appealing, maximalist, enjoyable elements of each one of them and being able to synthesize them into one unclassifiable genre that is pop as we think about it today. Because I often think of Michael and Quincy Jones doing that and I definitely think about Madonna doing that and then the other element being what she may have been drawing on from somebody like a Donna Summer like certainly a Diana Ross and certainly like a David Bowie is this 360 degree notion of pop stardom that pop stardom and pop music wasn't just about having a hit record but it really was about forming this world building idea of pop stardom that it was the song in tandem with the clothes and the pictures and obviously the music videos and the performances and the attitude and how that was all being presented were all of equal importance to each other. And I think that's a very 1980s and really Madonna-centric idea of pop stardom that has certainly only continued to expand from basically her and these other major figures of this period. So that's sometimes how I think about it as well, the fleshing out of those two ideas. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. I mean, if you think about it in the 60s, there was just pop and rock, basically. Yeah. The you could probably break it down to soul music and R&B and go into subgenres, but that was essentially it. By the time you got to the 70s, you had glam rock as well, and you had reggae, and you had disco, and you had punk. So by the time you got to the 80s, you've got a lot that you can choose from and you can draw on. Right. And then what artists such as Michael and Madonna did is they not only did songs in those different styles, so they mixed those styles together. So you kind of had punk and disco happening. Exactly. And so they just had a lot more wealth that they could choose and play with and experiment with. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier about the advent of new technology, there were tools available to them to help them explore that and create a new sound. We listen to those early 80s songs now or even mid 80s songs and we think they sound quintessentially 80s. But when you break down the structure of them, as I've done during the podcast, you can hear where the influences are on those particular songs. In terms of what Madonna was able to do to become that 360-degree artist, well, she had two fantastic further tools. One was that she was a dancer and a really, really good dancer. Yeah. I mean, at one point, that's how Madonna planned to succeed in her quest for stardom was to be a dancer. So she was very well-trained, very disciplined. She could really move. The other that she had was that she was beautiful or at least very photogenic. Now, there are some people that just see Madonna as being very photogenic. There are some that see her as being beautiful. I think all of us would say that she's not traditionally beautiful, but she's certainly got an amazing face that we can't stop looking at and that the camera really loves. So you've got the ability to come up with really catchy 
catchy pop songs, ability to move and dance to those, and also to look great as well, at the era when we also have MTV. So people were now watching on rotation music videos of songs. It was as if Madonna came from some sort of test tube or Petri dish of how to create the perfect pop star because all these things aligned at the same time. Fascinating. Actually, the way you're talking about her beauty reminds me of her voice because both are not necessarily traditionally perfect in any sort of way, but are absolutely singular. Minute you see her, the minute you hear her, even through all of her visual guises and sonic guises, she is so instantly recognizable, which is the key ingredient, I think, to a long-lasting pop career and a pop career that allows an artist like Madonna to travel through so many different styles, so many different looks, and still retain something essential, which has been, I think, such a key ingredient to her success and to her career, along with, I think, another thing that we have to put a pin in, which I think is maybe the definitional key to her long Longevity and success is just the sheer ambition of the whole thing. I mean, this is a person that had massive vision and massive drive and unrelentingly so in a way that I think even dwarfs that of the average pop star who is obviously ambitious enough to become famous in the first place, which takes a lot. So in thinking about Madonna's story and circling back to her, her life story is almost like American folklore at this point. So I don't want to dwell too much on it. She's, of course, born in Bay City, Michigan in 1958. Her father's a first-generation Italian immigrant who, like, works in a classic American and especially Detroit area sense as an auto plant worker at GM and Chrysler. Her mother is of French-Canadian descent and I think famously and really importantly for understanding aspects of Madonna's future work and her kind of persona and I think some of her drive, her mother dies when she's about three as far as I understand it from breast cancer. Is there anything that you feel is pertinent about Madonna's early life in terms of understanding the pop star that she's going to become. I mean, I think the death of her mother is really significant. As for her age, I'm not exactly sure. She's occasionally said that she was six and occasionally she said that she was five. Oh, okay. So in in typical Madonna style, I can't be certain. Mythology. In the song Mother and Father, she says her mother died when she was five, but that's possible because it rhymes really well with the the rest of the song. Never let that get in the way of a good lyric. Indeed. I don't think think we can underplay the importance of that. And Madonna's often spoken about when you're a young child like that, the death of a parent can have a huge effect and you're constantly looking for attention. I think you've got combined in that she was not the oldest child in the family, but she was the oldest girl. Mm -hmm. She was named after her mother. She, like many young girls, many daughters, was constantly looking for the attention of her father. And some might say, and maybe this is getting a bit too close to her personal life, which isn't something I necessarily want to tread too close to but all her future lovers were searching for a father figure as well so I don't know how true that is <laughs> but it certainly holds some feel water. free <laughs> feel free to pontificate so I think don't underplay the significance of the death of her mother and also the fact that her father remarried a few years later the housekeeper the right? housekeeper yeah I mean this is a classic story I don't believe that Madonna ever really got on with her stepmother but they had more children that became Madonna's siblings who she did get on with so they grew up as a really large family but there is some sort of again probably vying for the attention of her father over her stepmother as well and also having 
this idea of her mother as being the most perfect, beautiful woman, and I suppose wanting to become like that in many ways. So these things will definitely have had an influence on her upbringing. And also we talk about her beauty, and this is something that I'm cautious about saying because some Madonna fans get really sensitive about it, but I think one of the things that we can do with Madonna is critically analyse her in a way that comes from a place of positivity. But to say that Madonna is unusual looking wouldn't be untrue. I kind of touched on it earlier. And those unusual features, like you said, is very similar to her voice in that she has a very thin nose, she has a very square jaw, she has very deep set eyes, she has a very small mouth. Mm -hmm. If anything was a millimetre different, she probably wouldn't be as beautiful as she is. But everything is kind of perfect. And the same with her voice. Her voice is so almost ugly in the way that Stevie Nicks' is. is. Stevie Nicks has got one of the most beautiful voices ever, but it's so almost not great. And I think that kind of epitomises Madonna growing up and probably having these unusual features must have had an effect on her. And, you know, obviously later on she would grace the cover of Vogue and other magazines and and walk in catwalks and be called the most beautiful woman in the world. So I'm sure she had the last laugh. But I do think, and she has said herself that people thought as she was growing up that she was a weirdo, that she was the strange Mm. person, that people avoided Mm -hmm. her. So she was always an outcast. She was an outcast in her own family in some respects. She was an outcast at school and she yet had this undying desire for attention that made her strive to be noticed which ultimately she became the most famous person in the world so she succeeded i keep thinking about that lyric from keep it together on like a prayer where she says to get attention i always had to play the clown or something along those lines that line has always struck me as like a real lightning rod of truth And I wonder about something else that I feel like we should talk about, which is the Catholicism. I mean, so much of Madonna's artistic output churns on her contemplating, pushing back at, grappling with notions of Catholic guilt, pushing back at Catholic values, using that to generate controversy. So do you understand in any sense how religious the family was, like why that became such a huge aspect of her artistry? Well, I understand more about Catholicism through what I know about Madonna than I would ever know myself because I'm not Catholic but she reaches to it quite a lot and I think they were a very religious family as a lot of middle class American families were especially of that Italian descent so it was very important to her and I, everyone I know who's been brought up as a Catholic is now living with a lot of guilt because I think that's part of the religion that it instills upon you and that's there in a lot of what Madonna does Yeah. so we've got a combination of so many things that created Madonna being the eldest female her mother dying being born in 1958 at the advent of pop music, of having beautiful but slightly unusual features, uh, of being able to dance, all these things that, you know, just went together at the same time. Do you get the sense that the father sort of believed in her talent and ambition? Like, does there a vibe on that sort of whole thing? I don't think that he ever has. I mean, I don't know personally what their conversations are, but we we certainly know... Of course. (laughs) There is certainly some evidence that he's always been slightly embarrassed about her exploits. Right. Or that as far as she's concerned, she's 
never quite got it or you know we've seen things where he sort of says why do you have to get racy and mm. yeah like that scene in truth or dare that always stands out to me where he like can't quite give it up to her yeah, even there yeah. at like the apex of her success and i'm sure he's never fully given her the praise that she desires yeah she's probably said look dad i'm the highest selling female pop star of all time i have to sell out tours i've been on the cover of vogue etc right and he's probably gone yeah but you know or what have you and that's probably what drives her because Madonna is one of these people that is driven by criticism. Whenever somebody says, oh, she's not very good, she just wants to go better. Right. And I think that also goes back to her family life as well. So she's always striving to go one step further to be the best that she possibly can. So she has that drive anyway, which makes her do that. But also the desire to be appreciated, whether it's by her father or by music critics, is what pushes her as well. She's a really mm. interesting, complex powerful creature it's no wonder that she became who she became i mean there's something about the effortfulness of the whole thing that i think really feels important to understanding like what makes her so compelling as a person it's like it is that drive in a lot of her later work she references this idea of running it happens on ray of light a lot but this idea of how much of her success and her drive came from this non-stop need for forward motion which I think created so much fascinating material and art came out of that boundless energy and that boundless ambition, that boundless desire to prove everybody wrong. But I do think that that's also part of like what makes her compelling and inspiring and fascinating is the idea that she could never push it far enough. She had to constantly expand who you thought that she was. And that's why she has had the longest run potentially of centrist relevant pop stardom of maybe anyone close to anyone is because that need to constantly prove everybody wrong and to constantly expand the scope of who she was as a celebrity and as a pop star is incredibly intoxicating to observe. So in moving through the rest of her bio, she eventually discovers this passion for ballet and her teacher at the time, as far as I understood it, Christopher Flynn, encourages her to pursue a career as a ballet dancer. And she gets this scholarship to the University of Michigan to do ballet, but pretty quickly decides to drop out. And then as obviously everybody knows, with $35 in her pocket, she gets on a plane for the first time in her entire life and moves to New York City and gets an apartment, a shitty apartment in the East Village and works at Dunkin' Donuts. And how do you understand sort of the broad strokes of like what happens next and how she sort of ends up pursuing a career not as a dancer but as a singer well as i mentioned earlier madonna does like to rewrite history slightly <laughs> to romanticize it if you read the yeah. book by her brother christopher which sort of tells a lot of stories and was obviously written at a time when he wasn't feeling very close to madonna and when she wasn't very close to him so there is a bitterness in it without a doubt but I think it's all truthful. He sort of dismisses the $35 in her pocket story. <laughs> Madonna sort of 
came home and in agreement with her parents, she moved to New York and they sort of bankrolled her to start with. So, it, ah. I mean, I don't know if that's true, but that certainly dispels the myth. A trust fund kid after maybe, all. Maybe not so much that, but... Um, <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> the idea that she ran away is possibly slightly exaggerated by Madonna, but of course, it's a much better story. And she did actually go to New York to study dancing further in a different kind of dancing. And she talks about how she worked with Martha Graham etc yeah Alvin Ailey absolutely so the idea to go to New York wasn't to become a pop star it was to become a different type of dancer but I think quite early on she decided that wasn't for her she was a great dancer and she was learning loads and she I'm sure she was working at Dunkin Donuts and all sorts of places in order (laughs) to be able to afford the rent but at some point she decides that she wants to be a musician she's always been writing poetry apparently she'd had a book that she carried around with her. She had, at University of Michigan, befriended Stephen Bray. Oh, he was from Michigan. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, they were together and they were partners briefly. He also had moved to New York and he was pursuing a route through music as well. So Madonna was in a couple of bands. So eventually she became the front person in a band called Emmy, along with Stephen Bray, and then eventually started sending out demos of songs that she recorded on her own. She got management through Gotham, it was the name of the management company, and recorded more demos, again working with Stephen Bray on those. Stephen's name will come again and again, as I'm sure you're aware. Yes. And we all know how eventually, having been hanging out at all the right clubs, she was able to persuade DJ Mark Kamins at the Dance Satira to play her demo, we've recorded with Stephen Bray, of everybody. Right. And he managed to get her a deal with Sire Records and she was signed by Seymour Stein and the first thing they did was they recorded everybody together. That was 40 years wow. ago. And, you know, everybody was a reasonable dance chart hit. It didn't set the main charts alight, but it certainly gave an appetite for more. I feel like one part of the mythology, and maybe you're going to stick a needle in this one too, the scene, right? Like a big part of the Madonna lore is that she was deep in this incredibly cool crew of downtown New York artists and club culture, danceateria, the limelight, et cetera, et cetera. What do you understand about that scene and how does that scene inform the pop star and musician that Madonna is trying to become here? Well, I think that's definitely true. And I think what you have to bear in mind is that it was just a club scene in New York at the time. We look at it back now and we romanticize it and we talk about danceateria, we talk about the stuff that Andy Warhol was doing, we talk about the artists like Basquiat and Keith Haring and stuff like that. But at the time they were just people that she knew and that she ran into right she was going to all the right places she had the right look and she was ambitious so she was part of that scene or what became mythologized as that scene and that has a huge impact because new york even today but certainly back then was a real melting pot of lots of different talents lots of different cultures and again we're talking about the early 80s at a time when mtv and 
synthesized music and all that stuff was sort of really starting to take off. And Madonna was a part of that, definitely. All right, so you mentioned everybody. That's her demo that gets her a deal. They record it, and Caymans produces that song himself, and it becomes like a minor launch pad for her. Let's talk about that song briefly, and if at all you think it does provide some sort of like foundational insight into Madonna songs, it's the first one. How do you describe that song? Like, what is happening there in the production, and what is she singing about? Yeah, it's a really interesting sound, because it feels quite electro it's got that synth bleeps going all the way through but it's live drums so it's kind of not drum machine as the rest of her early stuff right. would have so there's a lot going on there I think it kind of is in many ways a blueprint for Madonna I mean the lyrics are dance and sing get up and do mm-hmm. your thing This is the theme that she would be bringing back again and again into the groove. Right. Music and songs that, you know, even in recent years, she's been singing. And I think dancing and singing is what she's all about. So whether that was intentional or not, it certainly is the blueprint. It's certainly far from the best Madonna song. I love it. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. But it's missing some of the stuff that she would gain in very short time from that single. It's certainly a very interesting start to her career. It's a little anonymous sounding in a way that you almost couldn't say of like nearly any other Madonna single. But some of the things that I was thinking about when I was listening to it is, A, you know, we mentioned Donna Summer, that moaning, I know you've been watching me. Yeah. I know you've been waiting. Yeah. I've been watching you. Yeah. Gave me love to love you baby sort of vocalizing. And I was also really struck by the music video, which is just a performance. Like, she's just on a stage, essentially. And given how much she was going to become known for her sort of, like, combative takes on sexuality and her sort of confrontational foregrounding of that, there's almost this androgynous, tomboyish vibe to her that was striking to me looking at it as, like, when she really first emerged, there's nothing particularly sort of, like, sex-forward about the presentation in that particular video, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I mean, you're quite right. But bear in mind that that was not recorded as a video. They didn't even record a video for the song. Right. And that's a t- TV performance that was done and yeah she does have that look by the time you get Madonna's first proper video is burning up which is the next single absolutely that was absolutely shot to be a music video and there we have sexy blonde Madonna right provocative dancing and doing strange things driving a car etc so let's talk about burning up that's the second single Bit of a sonic pivot from everybody. I feel like it has a lot more personality. Very interestingly, almost presents like an alternative vision for Madonna's early career where she's more of the front woman of a new wave group of some sort. How would you describe Burning Up? And like, does that present interesting insights into like how she's developing her sound here? What's really interesting about Burning Up is it doesn't really sound like an awful lot of other things at the time. Yeah, it's using a lot of the same sort of tricks. It's using the Lin drum machine. It's using a synth bass, etc. But it's got a lot of guitar in it as well, which those kind of songs weren't doing at the time. It is a cross between electropop and rock and a bit of punk and a bit of new wave and a bit of disco there's a, a lot going on there and it's got madonna's vocals which are so unique and really stand out And anyone that doesn't rate Madonna as a singer, yeah, she's no Mariah Carey, she's no Celine Dion, but you listen to a Madonna song sung by anybody but Madonna, and it's just not as good. No. Madonna has this 
storytelling ability with her voice that very few singers can pull off in the way that she does. Burning Up really does feel like the proper start of Madonna's musical career. And it's a song that she'd written some years before as well. It had been hanging around for a while in various different versions. And so this version was an updated to what had previously been released. And it's very contemporary, very 1983 sounding by the time it was released. I just love this song. And I mentioned the video earlier. I think the video is very of its time, but still looks pretty cool as well. And she looks really beautiful in the video too. So, you know, you've got the whole package. Yeah, you get a real sense that she knows how to like weaponize her image, which I think is like such an important element in her success. Certain things that just struck me about Burning Up This Time, the lyric, I'll do anything. I'm not the same. I have no shame. I'm on fire just feels like a thesis statement. She really is a shameless creature in a certain sense. There's something fascinating about the fact that she will do anything. That, to me, lays bare the sort of ambition and how boundless it is. And that really jumped out at me, as well as the frenzied confrontational sexuality that the song puts in your face, like this idea of burning up, this sort of sexual frenzy idea, but with the tongue planted in the cheek. You know, it's like throwing that in your face, this sort of like really overt, consuming, frenzied version of sexuality and like a challenging notion of that I feel like is present here for the first time in a way that everybody just kind of feels benign in a sense and also perhaps is an interesting window to talk about the rest of this record so basically these songs are club hits but not necessarily big chart hits they do lead Sire to allow her to make a record with Reggie Lucas at the helm maybe we should pause for a second and just discuss quickly who Reggie Lucas is and why he's the person that they choose or she chooses to collaborate here well I think having decided to invest in Madonna and record a whole LP they wanted to have somebody that could create the right kind of hit and take her in a certain direction and they put it together with Reggie Reggie had a number of successes over the previous years They just thought he was a really good musician for her to work with and hopefully bring some chart success to Madonna, perhaps taking that dance vibe and punk vibe and creating more of a pop vibe to what she was doing. And in many ways, they were right. And they got on really well. They wrote some songs together. They wrote some songs separately. But Madonna didn't particularly enjoy the process. She felt that she was not listened to in the studio that she had lots of ideas but Reggie just did what he wanted to do and he sometimes used too many instruments or the wrong instruments and she wasn't very happy with that album at one point and this is when she brought on her then boyfriend John Jellybean Benitez to remix some of the tracks now he wasn't a music producer at the time but he was a DJ and he knew how things should sound in the club and so he did make some changes to those early tracks now Madonna's obviously did have the clout to be able to do that so we talk about how the record company had decided who she was going to work with and how it should sound but she certainly had an ability to persuade them to have the songs changed before they were released <laughs> are you insinuating that madonna is strong-willed <laughs> i think without a doubt and they also then recorded a final track together which of course is holiday which is jelly bean's first production and that was the song that really helped sell the album mm. When I was going back and reading contemporaneous and retrospective reviews on the record, they kind of characterize it as 
innovative in the sense that it's providing a way forward for disco, but in the sort of post-disco era. And its utilization of electronic instruments was innovative for that time. I mean, not that other acts weren't doing that, but the music uses very little live instrumentation and is the offspring of like I Feel Love in the sense that it's like yeah. entirely made on computers essentially or however you would characterize machines at that particular time and I was intrigued by that idea that it's sort of a disco revival album but not using any of the ornate orchestrations that we sort of associate with disco music and allowing disco to like sneak back into the public consciousness even though it had this stink on it and that's what a song like Holiday really speaks to is like Holiday is more or less a disco song if you were thinking about it and it's really interesting I think the other element I just think thematically is that all of these songs feel lyrically like not loaded with a ton of personality which is kind of weird to think about with Madonna but because she is such a force of personality they have that to them like a song like Holiday you like go read the lyric sheet of that and you're like okay you know Holiday celebrate if we took a holiday it would be so nice I mean it's almost like child rhymes but like it's really A her voice and B her ability to like fill it with personality and also irony in a weird sense I think that make simplistic pop songs have more layers going on to them I completely agree with you everything you say is true but how did she know to do that it's amazing isn't it she knew how to perform those songs in a way that does exactly what you said and I don't know how she manages to do it that's the thing with her it's like she has this uncanny instinctual ability to know what people need from her and what pop music and culture needed from her then and next which I think is like one of the most fascinating elements of her is like she's known right for like pushing the conversation forward in the broadest possible way mostly really effectively walking this line between innovation or making something that's like pushing things forward but not too far far enough that it felt vanguard but not too far that she was going to lose the most possible listeners to her in fact when she stumbled in her career whether that be erotica or american life or whatever it's been when she's slightly miscalculated that perhaps but for the most part she has this incredible intuition in terms of how to both be avant-garde on some level and also the most massly consumable thing possible and i think that that is present here in even its nascent form in the sense that she is kind of like pushing the boundaries maybe perhaps or like presenting a version of electronic disco that does feel like very of the moment and critical but at the same time in the guise of incredibly simple easy to consume pop music pop melodies whatever and i think like lucky star really speaks to that Borderline, which I think is to me the best song on this record, and perhaps the one that has the most interesting lyrical content in terms of getting into ideas of transgression. What is a borderline? What is being pushed towards your borderline? You know, those are things that Madonna comes back to a lot.
We talked a little bit about some of the early music videos. There's a really important music video moment here and a mo I think a kind of formative moment in the music video for Borderline where she portrays an interracial relationship. It, I think, is an early representation of how she utilizes controversy to her advantage, which is like a huge element of her success. In thinking about maybe some of the visuals and then also just in terms of her persona on record, how do you describe, like, who is Madonna on these songs? Who is Madonna in this era? Like, what is her on record persona? What is her pop star persona? How would you describe that? It's really interesting because you mentioned the Borderline video and it's something we see very strongly in that one. We see it to an extent again in the Material Girl video a year later is that she has this streetwise personality, right. persona in these videos but there is also a meeting with somebody else. So in the Borderline video, she meets a much more older, perhaps, photographer who decides to take her picture and something similar happens in the Material Girl video as well. So this is what she was creating, is this persona of someone who was streetwise, a street urchin is the look that we often ascribe to this period, but who is reaching into other worlds and perhaps fits into them, but also uncomfortable in them. And I don't think it's any coincidence that this appeared in several of her videos around that time as a theme. So Madonna, as as a pop star was being somebody who was a bit of an outcast who wasn't rich who wasn't famous who wasn't posh for want of another word, but was fitting into that world and rebelling against it at the same time. And that's kind of why she was successful and why within a very short period in those early 80s, she got a lot of young female fans who perhaps were teenagers who wanted to be like her because she was rebellious and she was the person mm. that their parents were wanting their children not to be like. And I'm sure she would have loved that. So she was definitely a rebel. She was somebody who found herself not fitting into conformity. Mm. Tough. And cool. I mean, I think that was the other thing. Like, she always has this really cool factor going on. Like, you want to be her when you look at her. You want to dress like her. You want to have her attitude. I think that that's something that's really present. The other thing that I was just thinking about this in my head when you were talking about how did she know to make these songs more compelling or more dynamic or more multi-layered than they might have been on their face. I think it's the ambition. When you listen to these songs, she sinks her fucking teeth into these things in a way that you can't look away from. Like, you can hear the hunger. You can hear the drive. It almost creates, weirdly, and I don't think many people would characterize Madonna's singing, especially in this era, in this way, but there's a soulfulness to her that comes across on these records that isn't demanded from them necessarily. A lot of people associate her in this era with this sort of squeaky post Marilyn take on singing or whatever. But like, there's almost a soulfulness that kept registering for me on this record that I think emanates from the sheer hunger and ambition. Like she wanted this so badly and you can hear that even in her imperfect, untrained vocal performances. That is part of what makes them so compelling and adds so many layers to these relatively simple, very good pop songs, essentially. Yeah, it comes down to rawness, doesn't it? She's not polished. Yeah. A soulful voice is a voice that comes from emotion rather than technique. And that's what Madonna has in bucket loads. She just has this drive and ambition and this story to tell and, and she will strive to tell it. She wasn't trained as a singer. She didn't receive proper training to be a singer until much later in her career. So she was just learning by listening to other people and mimicking them. And so she would probably would have been listening to a lot of the soul singers and to an extent trying to deliberately replicate some of those sounds. But ultimately it comes from that drive and that ambition and that story and emotion at the heart of everything she was doing. How do you characterize the commercial trajectory of this record? I know it's a success, but does it establish her as the Madonna that we now associate as like the icon, the superstar? Like how does this sort of commercial rollout of this occur and reception occur? At the time, I think she was established as 
another popular singer. She wasn't particularly revered. It wasn't huge in terms of its success, but people knew who she was and they knew her because of her look. So the first album, or, or Madonna, whatever we want to call it, was a success, but it was probably no different than the first albums that would come from artists down the route like Tiffany or Debbie Gibson. As a commercial success, it was reasonable in terms of an artistic success. It gave us a few indicators of where she would go, but it probably wasn't very different to other music that was out at the time and it wasn't cutting across so in terms of conceiving of her second record which is 1984's the next year i mean she comes back pretty quickly here how does she shift her approach in terms of conceiving and making these songs as opposed to how the first record came together well i think the first thing that she wanted to do was to produce the album herself right she sort of insisted and the record company said no you're not ready so she said well if i can't do it i want the very best and so she got nile rogers on board nile rogers i'm sure everybody knows now had been a part of the band Chic who'd been extremely successful in the 70s since then established himself as a music producer. Fundamentally he'd produced David Bowie's Let's Dance album which was a huge success in 1983 and Madonna realised that his sound was exactly what she needed to take things to the next level. And what's really interesting about that album that they created together is that the songs are either songs that were written for other people or, you know, put out for covers like Material Girl or Like a Virgin or songs that she'd written with Stephen Bray and been hanging around for years and years. So it's still not the same idea that we have of a Madonna album where she sits down and starts fresh with a collaborator right. with a blank piece of paper and they create an album from start to end. This was sort of taking things either off her own shelf or someone else's shelf and creating this sound which was definitely a step on from what happened in the first album and what actually happened here and this is really interesting is they recorded the album quite early in 1984 and she was ready to go and release the first single like a virgin but at this point borderline was really taking off right and her record company didn't want to release like a virgin until borderline had not only cleared the charts but left some space for some new material so she was really frustrated to have to delay the release of like a virgin until much later in 1984 so her star had really started to ascend at this point that delay was really frustrating for her at the time but it kind of works really well with timing because by the time she was ready to release Like a Virgin coincided with the first MTV VMAs in the fall of 1984 and had she released it sooner, this wouldn't have happened. Ah, uh, right. So oh, had she released that single a bit sooner, maybe that wouldn't have happened. So it's all about timing with Madonna. I think what clicks here in an interesting way that feels formative for the future of not just her career, but of pop stars and their trajectories more broadly, is the idea of a lead single needing to be an event more than just a great song. So if you think about the first record as a series of really solid pop records, right? None of them are events. None of them are things that are going to make you like spin your head around and go, what the fuck is she saying? What is going on here? I think Like a Virgin is the big bang moment, even just as a song removing the performance, the performance helps kind of accentuate this idea. But this whole song, Like a Virgin, you hear that title immediately and you're like, okay, what? 
are you talking about? Like, you're like a virgin. The, the word itself is provocative. And then the song itself is an incredible iteration in my mind of the way that on its face, it's kind of a simple, straightforward song about like how you fall in love with somebody and they make you feel so excited and in love with them that it feels like the first time, right? But it's her delivery of it and her sort of irony and the tongue in cheek that adds all of the punch to it. Those are the elements that feel important and different here about this song is that it brings all of those ideas together and her understanding of what it would take to not just like come out with like another really great pop dance song, but to come out with something that was going to make people turn around and take notice of her in a bigger way. I think about I Kissed a Girl. I think about so many times that pop stars have turned to this exact formula. And this feels like such a huge formative moment for her and for pop music in general in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's Madonna's first time doing it, and I can't really think of another pop star that had done it before. This is the first time that it was such a big statement in terms of look, sound, title, right. video, performance. It really does take it to another level. And you're quite right, and I hadn't really thought that through before, that having had that with this single and this album, Madonna would go on to repeat that again and again. Yeah, It's quite astonishing. And I wonder if she had deliberately decided that that's how she was going to start this album, or it just so happened that that song fell into her lap and allowed that to happen. So it was the song that led this and changed things for her. I really don't know. It's a really interesting thought. So as you were mentioning, the crystallizing moment for this song and for Madonna's entire career is that at the premiere MTV VMAs in 1984, she opens the show. She is in a disheveled looking wedding outfit and she merges on top of the cake with this mannequin groom behind her and eventually gets to the floor, gets on the floor, rolls around a little bit in the dress. Her dress kind of comes up. You can see her underwear a little bit and that's kind of the extent of it. And maybe a little light humping, a little light humping. What's fascinating about this performance being perhaps the most iconic live television pop performance of all time is it's very simple what goes on. She basically descends the wedding cake. There's no choreography. There's not much happening. Nobody else is on stage with her. It's all her. Why is this performance so monumental? Like when you look back at it, I watched it like maybe three or four times the other day. It's gripping. It's fascinating. Again, the determination in her eyes. She knows this is her moment. You can just sense it. You just know she knows she's going to turn herself into something right here in this moment. But it's so funny to think about it, just like the song, like the way that the song is on its face, kind of a simple ditty. This performance is also like not super ornate. It's not like anything like the extravagant things she would become known for visually later. But yet, what is it that makes this such a huge moment in popular culture, looking back at it? Nobody had done it before. No, sorry, no female had done it before. Right. And I think that's a really important thing. Can you think of a female that had done this big sexualized performance on TV before. I can't think of anybody. And yeah, we can go 
back to the 60s and look at Mick Jagger and Tom Jones and then go through the 70s and talk about other artists, especially rock artists, male artists that had kind of done something close to that. No female artist had ever done anything, not just that overtly sexual, but that dirty is <laughs> the only way I can think of describing it. She's there with her stockings and a wedding dress and her legs practically apart. And that was such a shocking thing. And it's not just that. It's just not the shocking thing. It's just, it's so good. It's such a good song. Okay, it's overplayed. We've heard it like a virgin so many times that we're probably as bored of it as Madonna is. But it's a really good song. It's a really good vocal. It's a really good production. It's a really good idea. She really was the first to do this. She was the first person to do it on a major TV channel. And maybe that's the secret to Madonna is that she may have taken other things and made them popular without a doubt. But nonetheless, she was the one to do it. And it's what's really interesting listening to you say that is I'm assuming that you didn't see this the first time around no so you don't understand the impact that it had you've learned that yes but nonetheless you look at it and you can see how powerful that is because nobody's been able to replicate it you talk about Katy Perry I guess to go great song but it's almost intentional well it's it's a facsimile of a facsimile of a facsimile Absolutely. and that loses power Like a Virgin wasn't Like a Virgin was written by two men originally as a ballad and then got turned into a more upbeat song and then got covered by this raw female singer Madonna so it hadn't been intended to be what it was whereas these other songs were very much yeah calculations yeah. well so many people have taken things that Madonna had kind of pulled out of her ass and turned them into calculated moves of course I mean that's the thing that I kept coming back to looking back at all of this stuff like she just knew how to utilize and weaponize the format of MTV and the format of how to make these songs into something more than songs they're bigger than hit records like a virgin as a song you said it it's a great song it's everything else the way she sings it the irony she brings to it and then this sort of visual representation that makes it into the event that it is and what's fascinating to me about watching both the mtv performance and the music video which is working in the same vein she's in venice there's this tiger or lion or whatever and that's sort of like representing carnality whatever it is the sexuality and this is a fascinating recurring theme i think in a lot of madonna's early work is it doesn't feel meant for the male gaze and that was like another thing that i really enjoyed about it is that the sexuality is a confrontation it's a challenge it's supposed to be provocative she's not doing the sexuality in a way that's meant to be like hey boys i'm hot she's clearly trying to make a point and that's like what i love about that vma's performance so much like yes she's writhing and everyone focuses on the fact that she's being slutty or whatever the word that you want to use is but i don't that's not what i get from it more i get more of i'm trying to make a fucking point and like that's what comes across to me more so in terms of this entire song and everything around it than the idea that she just like was a sexy singer you know what i mean or something that would have been way less interesting there is often a criticism made of madonna that she uses sex to sell right and I know a lot of Madonna fans like to reject that. I disagree. I think she does use sex to sell and she uses it very, very cleverly. She has learned to sell sexuality because whenever you look through the history, certainly before Madonna and many, many times afterwards, men have used women sex to sell whether it's records whether it's movies or what have you mm-hmm. and she's doing it on her terms and she is empowering her sexuality and she is empowering other women at the same time and as we know she's also empowered the LGBT community yes so I never shy from the deliberateness of Madonna using sex and sexuality to promote herself it's not all she's got she's got a lot of talent as well yeah and I'm glad you're able to get that the Madonna's take on feminism is very clear being a feminist doesn't mean not being feminist 
feminine. And I think a lot of people misunderstand mm. that. There is this perhaps slightly unkind idea that feminists are perhaps more masculine, for example. Uh, and Madonna has said you can be a powerful woman and you can still wear stiletto shoes and have long blonde hair. And it's right there in her early work and it's there in Like a Virgin and what she's doing. She is being both a virgin, the idea of this man's ideal woman, at the same time she's being a slut. She's doing both things. How calculated that was, I don't know. I think we have to go back to what you said earlier about it being instinct and she had absolutely the right instincts. And you could tell that she was having so much fun with all of it, which is like also what makes it so compelling. When I watch that performance, I'm like, she knows on some level that she is about to like cause some form of stir with what she's doing and she is reveling in it. When I watch her tumble around in that dress, again, I don't think anybody could have realized what a big deal this performance was going to be, but I do think she knew what she was doing in she terms of like, this did. is going to be what everybody's talking about tomorrow and I pissed everyone off and she loves doing that and her love of doing that for the most part there were moments where this became irritating in her career later down the road but there's so many great examples of her having fun pissing everybody the fuck off and like that's part of the magic of what made her so amazing in this era she loved what she was doing she loved that she everyone was about to be screaming about this and she had the thick skin to endure what that brought to her also which is like another really important part of this. So in thinking about the rest of Like a Virgin, I really like what we were getting at earlier about Like a Virgin, the song, in terms of both being kind of like this big statement piece, i.e. maybe being the moment where she realized that pop stardom, or at least her version of pop stardom, was going to be about more than just having like great dance records as the first record was kind of comprised of and about making something with layers, something that had different components to it, whether it be visual, performance, there's a style component, all of these things, and also the sort of layers of depth and meaning that she added to a rather simplistic song, the irony, the tongue-in-cheek, all of that kind of intelligence that she sort of brought to the table. How do you feel like that applies to the other canonical record from this album? Album, which is Material Girl. Another sort of tongue-in-cheek song, right? I mean, would you say that that song is delivered with irony, essentially, this gold digger anthem? Completely, and I think Madonna's intentions could not have been fully realised had it not rung true to who she was and where we were in the 80s. Right. Because materialism was such an important part of the 1980s, Mm. and Madonna was the epitome of that. I mean, she chose in the video to reference Marilyn Monroe and her performance of Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Thing from Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. It's then that those louses go back to their spouses diamonds are a girl's best friend you can see what she was trying to do there what she was actually kick-starting with that video was her use of visual references from the past which we would see again and again throughout her career and she's still doing today and i don't know if she realized it at the time but this was just the first of a big journey where she takes something often iconic, often linked to Hollywood or fashion, and she puts it into her current work. I know we're not going to touch on Vogue today, but that is another example of where she takes all this inspiration from the past and represents it as her Madonna the pop star. So we see that in the video, but if you talk about the song itself, she didn't write this song, as you may be aware. Right. It must have been presented to her, and she must have thought, oh, that will be funny. People will see me as a material girl. And I think within a very short time, she probably regretted that she's still called the material girl today. 
And that's because it's a lazy, easy thing for people to refer to her as. And I think there's been certain times in her career where she's absolutely hated this song as well for that very reason. Madonna, you know, once one of her quotes, isn't it? I was being ironic. And I think this is what she was doing at the time. And I think some people didn't get that. And we here in the UK kind of believe that Americans don't get irony in the same way we do. I don't think that's true. I think you do. But maybe day to day you don't use it in the same way. Uh, and Madonna always has. She's always had irony in her work. And I think Material Girl is the first time where she's being a bit silly and being a bit fun, but also being kind of cool at the same time. So it's a real landmark. She was still creating this pop star and this pop star that she was creating with Material Girl is the ironic, the having fun person that we would see again in other songs. And also, as I mentioned earlier, this referencing of Hollywood or moments from the past. It's so fascinating thinking actually about the Marilyn reference in and of itself. Even in the way that she delivers her vocals, she's clearly doing some sort of take on the sort of breathy, squeaky Marilyn thing. Yeah. And it was funny because that's how so many people unironically defined her singing voice for so long. And I feel like that's another thing that she pushed back on a lot. Yeah, what's interesting about this song, I mean, it is a cover. It was written by someone else, but it hadn't been put out by anybody else. And it was presented to her and Nile Rodgers in a key that was not in Madonna's range. And what you would normally do is you would pitch it down, you transpose it down to be in a more comfortable range for a singer. But she insisted on learning how to sing it that high. And I think she found it very, very difficult. But she insisted, and Nile Rogers said it was a very ugly sound for a long time, until she'd perfected it. So she learned how to sing in a different tone and in a different range than she was built for, because she just likes to push herself. She likes a challenge. Yeah. She didn't want to make it easy. She wanted it to make it hard. And, you know, it worked. It's something like the second biggest streaming song of her entire career. Yeah. So, it, you know, it definitely paid off. What's so interesting to me about the references to Marilyn and of her portraying her in the video is it feels like a reclamation of the victimization that Marilyn often gets framed around. I mean, Madonna and Marilyn are actually pretty different pop cultural figures in a lot of ways. I mean, I know that she identifies with her and sees a lot in her. Obviously, it's a reference that she brings up a lot. But I feel like... Like Madonna's entire sort of thrust of her sexuality is about removing victimhood from female sexuality in a lot of ways. A lot of the way that she presents her sexuality is in, as we've mentioned in the past, this kind of combative way in this, like, there's nothing you could do to victimize me. I could be as sexual and sex forward as I want to be, and it is fully empowered. It's coming from my own empowerment. And Marilyn, I think, may have been doing something similar, but at least was seen publicly as a victim or someone whose sexuality was purely vulnerable. Marilyn's sexuality always came across as very tender and vulnerable, and that's how she always seemed on screen. Madonna, I think, has found ways to appear vulnerable, but that's been more difficult for her in her work. Even when she tries to sort of reveal something, you never get a sense that her guard is ever fully down, or very rarely do you feel like her guard is fully down. So it's a really interesting, like, recontextualization, as you were pointing out, of the Marilyn thing in a very different type of pop cultural figure. There's a very good reason for that, and that's because Marilyn was presented in her artistic form by men. Right. Her films were directed by men. You know, her work was controlled by men. Madonna's was either her own or the Material Girl video was directed by a woman, by Mary Lambert, of course, who yes. would also direct videos such as Like a Prayer and had done Borderline. So this was a woman presenting another woman. And that's the big difference with Marilyn. Had she been living in an era when she would have been able to present herself how she would like, you would have got female directors or more female directors. I think we would have had a very different story for Marilyn. 
Marilyn. So that's the big difference. Madonna was doing things on her terms, but also on the terms of other women and other strong women that had something important to say. Interesting. So in terms of the rest of Like a Virgin, what are the major themes or other Madonna guises that either get crystallized or perhaps presented for the first time here? Well, what's really interesting about this album is although Nile Rodgers produced it, he didn't write any of the songs. And Nile Rodgers has written some of the most popular disco and dance songs of all time, but there's two threads. So they're either songs that have been written by Madonna and usually Stephen Bray, so Angel being a good example of that. Or they were songs that were submitted or found, such as Like a Virgin Material Girl, Dress You Up, and of course a cover of the Rose Royce song, Love Don't Live Here Anymore. Her first real attempt at like a ballad. Yeah, definitely her first proper ballad. We know that Madonna is going to go down the route of writing her own songs, but she is not against using someone else's song if it has hit potential or if it speaks to her and it has something to say. So the album is going in two different directions here. Eventually the self-written thing would take over as we get towards Like a Prayer and the Erotica album, but at this stage she is not ashamed to use someone else's great work for herself. And what I think about Like a Virgin is, in terms of production style, it's probably aged one of the worst, really, of all those albums. I agree. I actually really prefer the first one, honestly, to this one in terms of how it's aged. Yeah, I agree with you, but the sound of the Like a Virgin was kind of unique to that album. It's a bit of disco and a bit of live stuff when you think of the Like a Virgin live drums and guitar and stuff like that. And then it's some very thin synthy sounds, like on Dress You Up. Neither of those sounds has really come back at all for anybody. So it stands alone. But you can't doubt that the singles, and of course I'm talking about Like Virgin, Dress You Up, Angel and Material Girl. And if you count the re-release of Into the Groove being on the album as it happened later. we're talking about some of the best pop singles of all time and of Madonna's career. I think what's so interesting if we're sort of like tracking Madonna as someone who had the intuition somehow to construct the platonic ideal of a pop career. So like every move she makes has been so copied over and over and over again. But for her, it felt like it was arising somewhat out of pure instinct. What this record represents to me is A, what we've talked about a bunch, which is the idea that pop songs, at least early on or at least at the beginning, or actually something she returns to a lot, at least a first single, whatever, it has to be a statement song that tells you something about what this next era is going to be about beyond just being a good pop song. But also, I think the variety that she's trying to show here is clearly part of the ambition and long-term view that she's taking on her career, where she realizes, if I just make 10 dance songs again, that isn't necessarily going to like set me up for what really is one of the things that her career turns on, which is that as this discography unfurls, she continues to expose layers of depth and expand the scope of her ambition and artistry. And I think that this album is taking a small step in that direction. It's again, one thing that I think this record suffers from for me slightly is there is a lack of depth and like there's a lot of fun and there's a lot of irony and humor, but I think she hadn't yet found a way to get real with people in a sense, which is something that I think her next two records are incredibly focused on in their own ways. But you get a lot of persona and not a ton of revelation into like who she actually is beneath that persona. Or you have to read between the lines 
lines for that maybe a little bit more. You don't feel that autobiographical thing that she starts to really churn on moving forward. So in terms of the commercial success of this record, we had talked about after the first one that she seemed like one amongst a new generation of pop stars that people were paying attention to, but that it was not clear after the success of that first record just how gargantuan this was going to become. Is it safe to say that following like a virgin, she had emerged at the top of the pack at that point? Oh, absolutely. By this time, she'd proved herself and she was a huge, huge pop star very, very quickly. It sold something like 21 million copies to date. And that's a certification from about 10 years ago. So that's pretty, pretty big. Sure. And was she taken seriously? Because I think this is another thread that is a driving force of Madonna's ambitions moving forward from here. What was this critical discourse around her? Like, was she seen as a credible artist? Or you were pointing at this a little bit with people seeing her as a cipher. She took a lot of swings at artistic integrity in her career. I wonder how she was perceived in this early moment. At this stage, she was, as you say, perceived as a cipher. She was not seen as a serious, credible artist, as a serious, credible singer. She was, however, seen as having the Midas touch, that she would put out a single Mm -hmm. and people would love it, people would buy it. And okay, so it may be young girls or or what Mm. have you, but she was a success. Like Katy Perry, like for a modern audience, how would you describe the success? That's a really good, I mean, we're talking about Katy Perry. Teenage Dream era. Yeah, 10 years ago or what have you. But yes, I think so. You knew that if you were going to hear on the radio, we have the new single from Madonna, it was going to be something that would be enjoyable and it would probably go into the top 10, if not the top five of the charts. Right. She was on a trajectory upwards, but she still wasn't yet seen as a serious artist. And for the reasons that I gave you, that these were some other people's songs that she was singing at this stage, certainly in, in terms of the singles. And the persona, obviously, that she was portraying here. If you weren't receiving it as tongue in cheek and just taking it literally, you probably did see her as vapid or yeah. lacking in depth or whatever. Yeah, she was still considered as vulgar by some people. Right, vulgar, right. Yeah, which, when, when you which think... Which will be a continuing thread. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, she still is today. And when, when you think of the things that she would go on to do, whether it be Justify My Love, the erotic album, or even the things that she's still doing today, this is not vulgar at all. This is quite prim. Yes, it's cutesy. It almost sounds like you wasn't a dress you up and you think Jennifer Garner rom-com. Absolutely. It's so girlish. Yeah, but she had messy hair. She had bleach blonde hair with the root showing, which was not seen. And, you know, when I first came across Madonna at the beginning in 1984, I was 13 years old. I just thought she was a bit grubby. (laughs) Yeah, right. I really think this is important to talk about the aesthetics of this era because obviously there's a transformation that's about to happen. But yeah, grubby. She was in the vein of those new romantic men in the sense of like, almost like pirate chic or something like that. Well, yeah. And there's the scene in Desperately Seeking Susan and it features in the video for Into the Groove where she dries her armpits under the hand dryer uh-huh. and she has hairy armpits. Now this was quite a European aesthetic certainly in Germany etc but it was not American certainly was not British at all. Right. For a woman to have hairy armpits was unheard of mm-hmm. and Madonna doing this and actually putting it into a music video or into a movie was quite shocking and I think as many people found that sexy as perhaps found it a bit dirty as well. Yeah. Madonna's always been divisive. So in the interim as you said she's in I think one of the most classic imperial phases in pop history as you said every song from this record that she spins off basically is a huge hit like a virgin number one in the US material girl number two in the US crazy for you is a song from the vision quest movie another early ballad from Madonna that I actually way prefer
Angel, top five hit, Into the Groove, number one hit in a lot of countries, including the UK, Dress You Up, number five. So she's on like a pretty incredible run of hit singles. And she returns again with the lead single from her 1986 album, her seminal 1986 album, True Blue. And it's called Live to Tell. Now, this song and video and physical presentation feels like one of the most important moments in Madonna's career. First of all, in the video, she returns and she has ditched all of the grubbiness for like a pinup full 1950s. She's gotten really fit too, like physical fitness sort of body thing had come into effect for the first time. And she's got this bleached blonde, super refined looking haircut. But she also returns the queen of dance pop, the queen of this frilly girlish music with this really hefty sounding ballad. That must have shocked people. Just saying it was a hefty sounding ballad is shocking enough. It's a six minute hefty sounding ballad, which is quite rare for any artist, let alone somebody that you think of being bubblegum pop. What a huge risk. That was what struck me so much listening back to this record. I was like, what a gutsy move on her part to release this as a single, but so shrewd. was written with Patrick Leonard who had been her musical director on the Virgin Tour and with whom she'd started writing and there's a great story he'd been writing a song for another movie and she'd come around to his place and she sort of laid down some lyrical ideas and a vocal and he then lost the deal that he had for the movie in between this on the very same day he'd met Michael Jackson and started sessions writing with Michael Jackson they wouldn't come to fruition but he was feeling kind of down when he came home and found out that he'd lost the movie that him and Madonna had written a song for only to get a call from Madonna and Sean Penn saying we're working on another movie now how about Live to Tell being the tune for that right so this is all in the same day and Madonna apparently didn't think that she should be the singer on Live to Tell as far as she was concerned it was just a demo that she'd written perhaps to be sung by somebody else it was in a different range from where she normally sings right much lower and everyone was saying what do you want about it it has to be so this wasn't Madonna going I'm going to change my look and I'm going to do this six minute song that's a slow electronic ballad right she changed her look because she appeared in the movie Shanghai Surprise which is set in the 1940s and so the look was about that and she kept that look because she wanted to tie it in with the promotion for the album she'd written this song for somebody else and for another movie than it actually ended up in so as much as we like to think of her being contrived this is just how it happened right and it happened brilliantly I mean that looks fantastic she looks so beautiful in the video to live to tell she does which is just filmed as inserts to the movie at close range that it features in but she looks absolutely stunning in it and it's one of the best songs it's the start of a theme of songs about her childhood so we've gone from somebody who has been singing other people's songs about being a material girl about being like a virgin to suddenly writing and producing her first song about her family and this is something that we will still be hearing about today she's still writing music about this theme today and it's phenomenal it is the vocals are just beautiful she obviously is no Whitney Houston but she has this ability to make something that sounds both huge and intimate with her voice which is a real gift as a pop star. Like there is something 
really tender about this in a way that like we had certainly never seen in her work to this point. I love the theme that we keep hitting on again and again about how these moves have been copied so many times that it almost retroactively makes us think that what she was doing was contrived when in reality it was just her weird sense of how to keep people interested in her. And it's so true over and over again we return on the show to one of the hardest things for pop stars to do is once they've emerged and established a very well-trod and successful persona, how do you retain what made people interested in you, but also add more to it, expand the layers of it? And what she does so cannily through all of these records is she achieves that. It's hard to describe it in any other way besides the fact that clearly she just had a real skill for interpreting what people needed and wanted from her and pushing it just far enough to keep it growing, but with out alienating people. And this song and this video represents the beginning of something that's going to be another thing that she's pegged to. She's the queen of pop, she's the material girl, and then she's also the queen of reinvention. And I feel like perhaps without necessarily even knowing that she was doing that, this song helped set the template that she would then reutilize again and again of like completely reimagining her look, reimagining like what each album was meant to sound like and be about in ways that retained the essence somehow or felt like they were building upon one another, but also radically shifting it so that people stayed interested in her. And that's how you end up being Madonna and not Debbie Gibson. You know, it's her skill in her songcraft and all the rest of it that allows her to do that. But this song is so fascinating in the sense of the way she starts to build out her pop star mythology and bring her biography into that whole story. And that's obviously something that Like a Prayer continues to live around. So anyway, I'm as big of a fan of this as you are. And I think it also is a perfect for Ray into the second single, which again does that in a more uptempo context, which is Papa Don't Preach, a song that essentially is dealing with pretty thorny political topics about abortion and teenage pregnancies. Again, another song that I can only imagine must have had people's jaws on the ground who had thought of her as Material Girl and Like a Virgin. Yeah, I remember at the time. So by this point, I was 16 and I was quite shocked by the theme and I liked her defiance in the whole thing. I'm Keeping My Baby was quite a weird topic for a pop song and very brave as well. And let's not forget, having just reinvented herself for the Live to Tell song, she reinvented herself again just a few months later with the short blonde hair and of course the very famous look from the video including the biker jacket which would also feature on the cover of the album right so it's almost as if she said okay you thought you knew what you were getting nope you're getting something completely different from that already it's really interesting so we talked about how like a virgin was the first event first single yeah well it's almost like there are two events and two first singles from this album yes exactly papa don't preach is a great sound as well it's got a really interesting synth string intro which has this baroque sound to it it's quite odd really and not really like anything else much out there but this very heavy synth drum beat and driving force behind it (laughs) 
and I can't really think of many other songs that sound like Papa Don't Preach at all. It's really quite original. The production is so muscular and the mood is so tense and claustrophobic. And I love how it's a story song. I almost thought to myself, it's almost like a country song in the sense that it literally unfurls like a tale. She does that so effectively, and again, the ambition of creating a song like that in the context of how people must have thought of her, and to be doing so, as you said, about such a difficult conversation to be having about women's autonomy and women's choice. And I think it's such an interesting angle to take on the song that she keeps the baby, but yet that is her decision to do so is such a amazing layered twist on like sort of the feminist ideals that sort of surround abortion. I don't know what the abortion debate was like in 1986 versus is how it is now in at least in America but I really love the idea of the ultimate feminist empowerment turn here being that she's deciding to actually not abort the child is a really interesting choice well it's really interesting I think if this song was being made today or a version of this song to have the same sort of impact it would be about the choice that a woman has perhaps to not have the baby yes and so it's really interesting how the dynamic has changed and quite rightly it's about women owning the right to their own choices and this is just the other side of the coin and I don't remember I was as I said 16 at the time I'm not sure what kind of discussions were happening but it certainly felt powerful at the time and she was representing young girls so she was doing it all along you know Madonna at the time was 28 or nearly 28 but she was very much speaking for teenage girls who were her main fan base at this point and so she seemed like she was an older sister as it were who was bravely speaking up for younger people she has older sis vibes a lot actually she does seem in this era quite a lot like your cool older sister who you might wish was your cool older sister yeah. the way she sounds on this record edward i mean her vocals have come so far and she's so convincing as an earnest straightforward conveyor of emotions in ways that you would have had no real idea about in any of those first two records well it's interesting we talk about her voice because in a tweet about a year ago stephen bray on the anniversary of the release of this song talked about the recording of it and talked about how madonna had a cold when she Ugh. recorded this song and this is so typical of madonna there's always such rawness to what she does so many singers would refuse to record it under those circumstances it's a bit like sometimes you should record your answer phone message when you've got a cold because your voice is at its most husky right and that really comes across in this song and then open heart is the second song on the record which is one of my all-time favorite madonna records just the most robust wall of sound dance record production i mean i i'm so glad i have you here to describe this to me this is a record whose production i just find absolutely enthralling the production on this song is so fantastic and it's a very rare example of something from the mid 80s which is there are live drums and a synth bass A lot of songs around this time perhaps might have live drums and live bass, or they might have synth drums and a synth bass. Yeah. But it's got a really rich, full sound from that very powerful drumming that's going on. Very tight drumming, but that bass line, the ba 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 is really strong and really driving. Madonna's 
Madonna's voice on this. When I used to listen to this, I used to think she's kind of out of tune in it, and she kind of is. She's really pushing the emotion so much that she doesn't mm-hmm. care about mm. how in tune she is. But she's kind of doing that thing that men would do. I mean, I'm thinking again of somebody like Mick Jagger, where they're just getting the emotion out. Guttural, they'll sound raw, they'll sound raspy. Female singers just did not do that at the time. Once again, Madonna is singing like a man. the force of will of her life force just comes bursting through and it's like so not about the virtuosity of it it's about a like the exuberance of desire and b her force of sheer will to get what she wants i mean she literally says in the song i've had to work much harder at this for something i want don't try to resist me she's saying that in the context of a romantic relationship but you could also take that lyric as just like a statement of purpose in her pop career there is nothing that will stop me i am a absolute steamroller and I think that's how the vocals sound. Yeah, and again, we've got that metaphor, don't try to run, I can keep up with you. This is something, as you said earlier, we're going to hear again in her career. always thinking about running and how she can't stop and don't stop her and stuff like that it's something we'll hear again and it's there in this song a song that she didn't even write I think she may have changed the lyrics to the bridge it was written for Cindy Lauper no? well there's a bit of an urban myth around it the singers say they wrote it for <laughs> Cindy Lauper I don't know how right. true that is I love hearing her earnest expression of emotion you know after so much irony and so much wink wink nod nod ha 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 it's so nice on all three of these songs on some level to just hear her be real. I don't know. There's something really nice about that and really important, I think, in her longevity. Like the way that she was able to adopt all these different guises so effectively was so dynamic and fun to experience and made you keep going, oh, wait, her. Oh, wait, her. Oh, wait. Oh, she can do that. Like there's something so brilliant about her approach to that. And especially on this song, unlike Papa Don't Preach, which is still using controversy to its advantage, which is like something that she clearly knows how to do very well. This is just a complete open-hearted statement of sort of romantic, sexual desire, love, whatever, pursuit. And there's something simple about it that I really enjoy hearing her on in the context of the first two albums as well. Yeah. In terms of the rest of True Blue, what are the expanded themes? And we talked a lot about her personas on the early records as being just like the cool girl, the it girl who like knows what's cool in dance music or whatever it is, like and also kind of have like a punky combative vibe. Has her personas Sona expanded on any of these songs in particular? Like, how do we perceive her on these songs on this record in particular? I think the interesting thing about this album is what had happened in Madonna's life during the period between Like a Virgin and True Blue. And that was, of course, that she'd got married, that she'd fallen in love with somebody who perhaps even today is still the love of her life, Sean Penn. Mm. And she dedicates this album to him, the coolest guy in the universe. Right. I think you can really hear it on the song True Blue, True Blue, I Love Mm. You is very much coming from the heart of somebody who is absolutely head over heels in love with their match. Also a great example of her obsessions with 
the past in terms of like being a great Motown homage, like oh, yeah. a little bit Dixie Cups going to the Chapel of Love vibes going on here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. The way she positions herself in pop history is fascinating on this record in a lot of different ways. She had done some songs that dealt with the same sort of theme in her previous albums, but this time she was writing those songs. She's writing a song about how she is absolutely head over heels in love with the perfect person. And there are themes about love makes the world go around, true blue, I love you, open your heart to me. It's again and again somebody who is absolutely, to her mind, met the man of her dreams. And again, I was just going to say also the fascination, not just positioning herself once again, in pop history with these Motown girl groupy references, but also again, the sort of like nonstop thematic obsession with golden era Hollywood in the open your heart video. She's at a movie theater and she's like dressed in like Charlie Chaplin garb essentially, right? And then in White Heat, she's sampling Jimmy Cagney's voice. Come on, get up. Get your hands up. Yeah, that's it. A nice gold medal for the cover. Only maybe he's gonna get it sooner than he thinks. There's a big theme through a lot of her music of recontextualizing golden era Hollywood. Yeah. Now, this is something that you might not be aware of being a little bit younger than me, but it's something I was very much aware of in 1986 is there was a real celebration of that at the time. There was a very retro feel in the 1980s for the 1950s. Michael was obsessed with this too. He did this all the time as well. Absolutely. So during this point, certainly in the UK, James Dean and Marilyn Monroe were real icons again, and their looks were very much coming back. So in terms of fashion, the real cool side of fashion, that kind of 1950s, the chinos, the stripy tops, the Harrington jackets and stuff were very much fashionable again. Madonna would copy the Marilyn Monroe haircut a bit. She would put an 80s spin on it, and by 1987 it went somewhere else as well, which maybe wasn't the best choice. Uh, but you know that was that was that was certainly the inspiration and the start of it. And so it, this was something Madonna was doing, but it was also quite zeitgeist. It was a thing at mm. the time of celebrating the 50s and to an extent the 40s, and maybe an early part of the 60s as well. So she was jumping on that. But like Madonna, she was making her own and making it about herself and the things that appealed to her. And we see it in the True Blue video, of course, where she is dressed in an early 60s retro. So this is very much a vibe that's going on. Even the cover is kind of a pastiche of a big Hollywood movie as well. Herb Ritz, right? Took that picture? Herb Ritz took the cover photo. It's one of the best album covers of all time. Oh, God, it's amazing. Yeah, it's very similar to his album cover that he did for Olivia Newton-John's physical album a handful of years earlier. But yeah, the album cover itself feels very retro. It's kind of retro with the Marin hair and the black and white look, but it's kind of modern as well. She's wearing the biker jacket. And this is what Madonna's all about. She's sort of taking something familiar from the past, uh. but re-versioning it herself. She's just brilliant at doing that. And by this point in her career, she's really pushing it out there. This feels like a prototypical, as the kids today might say, album era with a fully realized aesthetic that pushes through the entire thing. The album works as a unified piece with like a lot of different themes that she returns to and hits on both aesthetically and thematically over and over again. She's tossing off a murderer's row of hit songs from it. In a way, I sort of was thinking back on this, perhaps thrillers also in this category too, which had come out a couple of years earlier as true representations of the album era of pop stars sort of churning on this idea of here's my next era and it looks 
looks like this. It sounds like this. It feels like this. This is the first time that I feel like in her trajectory, like she's really codifying that for herself. The one canonical True Blue song that we have yet to touch on remains, I think, at least on United States Spotify, the most popular song from this record, shockingly to me, is the song La Isla Bonita, which is the perhaps most important starting off point for another theme that Madonna is going to return to over and over again, which is her obsession with Latin American sounds. She actually does hit this on Papa Don't Preach has a Spanish style instrumentation on the bridge, but this song is her most obvious homage to Latin American culture. What do you make of this song? And are you surprised that this is the most enduring hit from this record? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. When you count up all the Spotify listens and all the YouTube listens, not only is La Isla Bonita her biggest stream song, it's way out ahead of the others as well. It's in the billions compared to Material Girl, which I think is the next one down. It's absolutely huge. And I think that's because these days it has an appeal with South America. But Madonna's always had this obsession with Latin sound and music. And this is the first time that she's able to present this to us this is the song that really turned me on to madonna it still sounds great i've got a very special connection with this song it's very seductive and inviting and it immediately breaks the sort of binary that we've heard her in before which are these 120 bpm slammers and then these few stray ballads this is something adventurous sounding actually like listening to her sing in this rhythm this pace this tempo this guise is new and it jumps out at you on the record for those particular reasons it seems almost a bit gimmicky at the time especially when the video came out and she wore the big red dress and there were the right exactly uh, you know the, the, the latin dancing in the video right and this is madonna doing okay i'm gonna have this look for this video i think what's really interesting about this song when you consider how unique and very 80 sounding papa don't preach sounds la isla benita sounds of its time but is also timeless i agree way more so than that song for sure yeah and i don't know why that is i think it's got a really heavy synth beat and synth bass and it's got live percussion. And it's been referenced so many times. I mean, you think about Alejandro, you think about all of the Ace of Bass songs from the mid-90s. All of these songs are building on some of the formula here. It's a really great song and it was the final single, obviously, from that album. But it's not the end of it, really, because her next single yeah. would be Who's That Girl, which was from the Who's That Girl soundtrack. But it has a very, very similar sound. And I don't know if Madonna thought, hey, this has been a success, I'm going to repeat the formula. Because as we know, that's very unlike Madonna. But this was clearly a path that she was going going down. So if Madonna had never released another album again after True Blue, what do you think her legacy would have been in pop? Let's say, tragically, she decided to pivot to woodworking or something like that after True Blue. What would her legacy in pop have been at that point? She would have been known for some fun pop 80s hits that people would have mm -hmm. thought were really cool. I don't think she would have got what she did because so much of what she achieved was with the Who's That Girl tour onwards, just being the global phenomenon that was seen around the globe running in every country where she was performing and taking the media by storm by the movies with various successes I think we have to admit <laughs> that she would do and of course with Like a Prayer Like a Prayer changes everything because this was where she was first taken seriously as an artist so if it had ended with True Blue I think we may think of her perhaps more favourably than somebody like Tiffany who's only really known for a few songs yeah. same with Debbie Gibson I don't know quite who we'd put her with maybe somebody like Cindy Lauper Paula Abdul yeah maybe I think a little bit 
bit more successful than that. We'd probably think of her as kind of cool and fun. I don't think she would have been regarded as the artist that she is now because a lot of that happened after the True Blue album. You can see it there in the origin and we've talked about it there. But it's a really interesting question how we would think of her. I'm trying to think of other artists that you could say was similar. Katy Perry. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, Katy Perry <laughs> should have given up after her True Blue album, I think. <laughs> she's an artist. I think you're right. I like Katy and I like a lot of her songs, but she's never known quite where she needs to be these days. No, she doesn't have Madonna's instincts at all. In fact, I think she has mislearned a lot of Madonna's moves. Like, her attempts at spirituality, her, her attempts at revealing autobiography have always felt so flat and one-dimensional in a way that Madonna's never did. You know, it's really interesting to watch other artists attempt to copy and fail. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. it only speaks to her brilliance, I think. Well, we talk about how many artists, female artists, have copied the Madonna blueprint, but they haven't done it successfully because they haven't tried to be themselves. Madonna wasn't trying to be Madonna. She was just doing something unique. You could say Britney's had success. You could say somebody like Kylie has had success yeah. by copying the Madonna blueprint. And they have without a doubt but they've not received the level that Madonna has and I don't mean just sales figures but the place in artistic history that Madonna has because they just don't have what she has she's really unique but I believe that you have to look at all the shades of Madonna you can't just see things as black and white because she has so much depth to what she has done it's so many shades and textures to what she does last question for you we've talked about so many songs this era so I don't know how to even phrase this exactly but what is an underrated Madonna song from this era something that like maybe is just less obvious maybe something we haven't spent a ton of time on that we could send the podcast out on that you think people should hear well it's funny when you sent me some notes about how we, what we're going to talk about I think about two or three weeks ago and I thought about this and I wasn't sure how to answer and I have got the answer now because I don't know when this episode is going out but a week ago for us we did a big event for Inside the Groove in London in a club and we all got together and we had a Madonna disco afterwards and a song that I've always liked was played and it was quite near the end of the evening when people were really excited and that was Where's the Party? Yes! And it is such a good song especially the remix that's on You Can Dance which has just been re-released in a single edit form. It's such a good feel-good song and then when you also take into account the Blonde Ambition live performance which is really cool as well. It's brilliant and I was playing it in the car on the weekend to my husband who is a Madonna fan. He's not the nerdy type of Madonna fan that I am and perhaps you are and he was like oh yes this is a great song and he was like who wrote this? Was it Stephen Bray? Or was it Patrick Leonard? And I said, it was both. It is the one Madonna song that is written by Madonna, Stephen Bray, and Patrick Leonard. And he said, well, no wonder it's a banger. I mean, that's Mm. all three producers and songwriters, main songwriters of the True Blue album came together. This is such a brilliant song. And you can make it all right. You can make it dance. You can make a party last all night. It's such a great thing to say and to sing. It just sounds really nice. It's got a really great vibe to it. Oh, what a fantastic song. And if you watch a performance, watch the Blonde Ambition live performance because it's so much fun and it will make you feel good and you'll want to be at that party where Madonna is I can assure you that all right well let's go out on where's the party Edward Russell thank you so so much for being on the show hey thank you so much for having me I've really enjoyed speaking to you I hope that anybody that listens checks out inside the groove take care All right, so there you have it, Madonna Part 1. Be back next week with us, same day, same time, where we will be talking about Like a Prayer, 
Vogue, Erotica, and Bedtime Stories. I want to thank the fabulous Edward Russell for being such an incredible guest. I want to thank the fabulous Russ Martin for being such an amazing person who helps make this show happen every week. And thank you to Seth Kelly for his help editing this episode. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod, me at DJ L O U I E X I V on both Twitter and Instagram. Hop in our Patreon, patreon.com slash Pop Pantheon for bonus episodes and Discord. Get the Spotify playlist for this and every episode in the show notes of this episode. Rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And until we meet again next week, have a wonderful life. Bye bye. Yeah.